0: I bring a lot of different types of content to you here on the show, and some days it's fun and it's light, and some days it's technical, but very rarely do I succeed in bringing together really awesome technical content presented in a really fun and interesting format. But today, today, Radicals... I'm pretty excited. I think I've succeeded. <laughs> if you have student loans, or if you have anybody with student loans, or excuse me, you know anybody with student loans, make sure that before you make any changes or do anything with those student loans, you first listen to today's show. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. My name is Joshua Sheets and I'm your host. Thank you for listening. I appreciate your being here today. I've got an education for you. You already got the schooling. (laughs) Now let's have an education on student loans. I get excited when I get to learn something, and I learned a bunch during the course of conducting today's interview. My guest is Jay Fleischman, he's an expert on student loans. You're going to love this. a real treat to be able to talk with somebody who is an expert and who can just give you great ideas wrapped up in really actionable in a really actionable way. And today's interview is really going to be a treat for you. I think you're really going to enjoy it. You're going to want to grab a pen and paper, and this is a show you're going to want to listen to uh, more than once if you have student loans, especially. Uh, I know that I personally uh, am have lis- I'm going to listen to this show uh, a couple of times to make sure that I've fully grasped the information, even though I conducted the actual interview. But my guest is a man named Jay Fleischman. Jay is an attorney, as you'll hear in just a moment, and also he hosts a podcast called The Student Loan Show. And he reached out to me and offered to come on the show. He's a listener of the show, and and I'm so glad that I had him on. It was a great interview. Grab a pen, grab a piece of paper, get ready to take notes, and enjoy learning about some radical strategies that you can use to help you with your student loan debt. Jay, welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. I appreciate you being with me today. Thanks for having me, Joshua. It's nice to have a subject matter expert on the show, and I hope to dig a little bit into uh, issues surrounding student loans, but I'd like to start with just uh, an introduction. Would you be willing to share a little bit about your background and history, and specifically as it relates to your involvement with the topic of student loans?
1: Sure. I have been a consumer protection attorney since the end of 1995. Uh, primarily focusing on the field of consumer bankruptcy protection. So that was really where I I, I tell people I grew up as a bankruptcy lawyer. And um I, I did only bankruptcy work for a very, very long time. And then about four years ago, I finally had it up to here with not knowing what to tell my clients who had student loan problems. Because for the most part, student loans cannot be resolved through a bankruptcy proceeding. And at that point, I became uh, acquainted with another attorney by the name of Joshua Cohen, who is a student loan attorney and he practices out of Vermont. He was in Connecticut at the time. And I sat down and had lunch with him one day and he agreed to spill his secrets to me. And I agreed to do my best work uh, for for people who had student loan problems, and ever since then, really, I've been doing pretty much entirely student loan resolution, uh, federal student loans
0: as well as private student loans on behalf of of ordinary borrowers. So you have a national practice then, uh, working across the country, or specific to one location? I
1: I handle federal student loan resolution nationwide private student loan resolution i only handle in new york and california because those are uh those loans are primarily going to deal with state based questions and those are the only two states where i'm admitted to practice law so
0: Let's start with the differences between private and federal student loans. Pretend Uh that I'm interested in going to college and I've decided I'm going to borrow some loans to pay for my college tuition bills. And I've got offers for private loans and I've got offers for federal loans. How would I start to approach that process and what should I be aware of on the back end? especially as a prudent consumer, a prudent borrower, knowing knowing that there's always a risk that I might have some trouble uh, paying these things off on their pre-agreed-upon terms? Mm-hmm. Well,
1: federal student loans can only be taken out directly from the U.S. Department of Education, and that's been the case for the past six years. In order to be able to get federal student loans, you need to file your FAFSA, F-A-F-S-A, uh, anybody who's gone through undergraduate or graduate school, has has gone through that process. Uh, It's an online form. It enables the government to determine your eligibility for federal financial aid. Uh, From there, um, that's that's really the entry point for it. Um, Federal student loans are always going to be fixed rate. They are always going to be at rates that are mandated every year. Uh, by the federal government, so your federal student loan that you take out for fall semester of 2015 is the same federal student loan that I'm going to take out for fall semester 2015. Same rate, same terms, same repayment options. Um, That's always going to be the first money that you want to take if you're taking student loans. The reason for that is... First of all, they're fixed rate, as I said. Second of all, federal student loans are not credit-based. So if you take out a loan for your own education, there is no credit check. It doesn't matter if you've got good credit or bad credit. You're still going to get the same loan and you're still going to get the same rate. In addition, federal student loans come with a variety of repayment options. Um, You've got your standard repayment that's 10 years, you've got your extended repayment, you've got your extended graduated repayment, you've got income-based repayment options, you've got deferment, you've got forbearance options, you've got a whole host of different ways that you can structure your repayment. Um, Private student loans are no different than any other private bank loan. You go in, you negotiate a rate with your bank, most of them are going to come with variable interest rates. Most of them are going to require cosigners because they are all going to be credit-based. In addition, there are no repayment options. In other words, if it's a $25,000 loan that you're going to have to pay off within 10 years, that's what you've got. Those are the terms of your loan, just like any other bank loan. You don't have any... Income-based repayment options. You don't have any debt forgiveness options, loan discharge options, um, disability options. You've you've got no protections um, that are outside what you would normally have in any other bank loan.
0: With regard to the private loans, are yes. do those face the same? Uh, lack of ability to discharge in a bankruptcy proceeding as the federal loans do? Yes, they do.
1: And that's really that's really the sticking point. Um, federal student loans, because they there are so many repayment options, the fact that you can't discharge them in a bankruptcy proceeding for the most part, there there are circumstances where you can discharge a student loan in bankruptcy. But for the most part, they're going to survive. Um, the fact that the federal student loans are going to survive bankruptcy is not as big of a problem given the fact that the federal government offers so many repayment options. Private student loans, no repayment options, no real ability to discharge those student loans, you're you're getting the worst of both worlds.
0: What's the fact pattern that seems to emerge if you were going to look across your client base and the cases that you handle? what would you say is probably the most common scenario that you wind up with where somebody has a lot of student loans and now they're facing uh, a litigation event and really struggling what happened in those those cases
1: what you're dealing with in large measure is people who took out the maximum amount that they were allowed to take in the hopes that their that their employment was Gonna be okay. That they were gonna graduate from school. They were gonna get their degree or their certification. They were gonna get a job that was gonna pay them enough to repay the student loans. Reality is that that's not the case. That's not the economy that we live in. And an undergraduate education doesn't guarantee you, doesn't guarantee you anything anymore.
0: Do you find then that many of your clients are just kind of uh, what I'll call uh, stereotypical undergraduate graduates? They went to school, went to college, they spent, I don't know, $15,000 a year and they got $60,000 in student loans and graduated with a traditional bachelor's degree? Or do you find that you're dealing with clients who decided to go to law school and quit after year two or decided to go to dentistry school and quit uh, partway through?
1: No, no. For the most part, it is folks who have gone through an undergraduate education come out the other end with the expectation that they'd be able to get a job and that that job was going to pay them enough to not only provide for a living wage but also provide for the ability to repay that student loan debt. Um, very, very infrequently have I seen somebody who has begun a graduate degree and for one reason or another hasn't been able to, to complete it.
0: It's pretty heartbreaking there. because when you go back and look, I, I think it seems to be different. But uh, if you start researching a little bit, I'll, I'll just call it the student loan scandal. <laughs> I've read a few. <laughs> I've read a few pieces on it. Uh, there's some pretty shady stuff that's happened in the dishing out of these loans. And I'm not ready to build a legal case at the moment, but there's at least enough shady stuff that I've read about. And it's heartbreaking because I've sat there as a financial planner. I haven't sat there as a as a bankruptcy attorney, or but mm-hmm. I've sat there as a financial planner kind of looking at the balance sheet. And here I've faced a, a husband and wife, and one of them has – I mean, my experience sixty thousand dollars for a soft, kind of fuzzy undergraduate degree in you know, mm-hmm. communications or counseling yep. or something, and they yep. work and making thirty five thousand dollars a year. And that uh, <laughs> that bachelor's degree, uh, I'm all for being a well educated, well rounded person. But speaking on a financial terms, that bachelor's degree had no impact on their life whatsoever, and they wandered in foolishly to this situation. It's a heartbreaking scenario to be in.
1: Well, sure. And, uh, I mean, think back to when you were 18 years old and going to college. I was How stupid. Much, <laughs> uh, well, no, you were 18. And there that's we go. What, That's that, nice. You, you were just a normal 18 year old and your parents probably said you've got to go to college because that's what you do because you're going to have a better life. You're going to make more money and the world's going to be far better for you. So your parents inadvertently had drunk the Kool-Aid, you drank the Kool-Aid, you came out on the other end of it thinking a degree itself was going to be your ticket to a better financial situation, not necessarily making a determination in advance of what that degree was going to be. You know, I went into I went into college in 1987 and I went into college and on day one I declared a major. I was an economics major from day one. Um, Just a few weeks after that was when the market crashed, and I was still an economics major, and that's what I was going to be. And nobody told me that you need to make sure that the major that you're going to choose is going to be something that's got a financial trajectory or a career trajectory that's going to take you where you where you need to be. Um, because if you're going to be a communications major or an English literature major or a history major, unless you've got a plan to go to grad school of some sort, that's not really a marketable set of skills that you're going to walk out with. Right. You're, you're just not. Um, and A lot of what's happened in the student loan market, you talk about the student loan scam, a lot of this happened because of the changes in the bankruptcy code in 2005. Up until 2005, you were able to discharge private student loans just like any other debt, any credit card or personal loan or what have you. In October of 2005, October 17, 2005, was when the bankruptcy law was changed and it was amended to roll private student loans in the same way that federal student loans were rolled in. Now, at the same time, you had the mortgage market was, was still going full swing, right? I mean, everybody was still buying houses. But what was happening was the mortgage market was in such a state that most, if not all, of the prime lending candidates had already had already entered the mortgage market and because the mortgages were all securitized the investors were starting to dig deeper and deeper and deeper into the subprime arena to be able to get more people into the system to be able to create more of these securitized trusts to be able to get uh, a continued rate of return when that started running out the wall street Financial institutions realized that they could securitize private student loans the exact same way that they securitized mortgages. And like mortgages, there was very little risk of downside. In the mortgage market, the thinking was there's very little risk of downside because what's the worst that can happen? We get the house back. That's the worst that can happen. Mm-hmm. And if the value of the house goes down a little bit, fine, we take a short, we, we take a small loss, but we're never gonna lose our shirt. That that was the thinking behind, behind the way that the risk was put together. For student loans, it was very similar. What's the risk of loss in a private student loan? Well, they don't pay, and then we sue, and then we get a judgment, and we get a garnishment, or we freeze bank accounts, or we put liens on real property but they can't go into bankruptcy and discharge the obligation. So we've got a very small amount of downside. That's really when the private student loan market took off because all of the financial institutions were able to securitize those student loans and be able to create additional investment vehicles for people who are hungry for them. So, Suddenly you had this limitless market. Now, when you've got a limitless market for money, then you turn over and you look at the, uh, you look at higher education. you look at the standard uh, colleges and universities, but you also look at the for-profit market, the, mm-hmm. the ITTs, right. the Corinthians, the, the Phoenix, all of those folks. And they sit down and they realize, well, wait a minute, we can increase our tuition to any amount of money that we want because we know that a student walking in can always get a private student loan. We know that we can, part of the sales package is you don't have to worry about any of the money all you have to do is take out a loan, and you'll pay it back later when you're making all this money after your graduation. Right. So they start increasing their tuition to ridiculous numbers. That's, that's when you start seeing this hockey stick right. of the increase in tuition. So one feeds the other. That's the great student loan scam, and everybody was complicit in it.
0: Do you have do you have an opinion on the involvement uh, as far as different people's the, the involvement in influence over getting that law changed? Yeah, I've got a tremendous <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of opening you up kind of just I'm just interested in hearing you talk about it cuz it really frustrates me from that perspective, but I'm interested in your perspective on the actual political and legal maneuverings that resulted in that.
1: Oh my God! Well, the the political maneuverings had been going on for years. They'd been trying to get the bankruptcy code changed for years. I started practicing, I started practicing bankruptcy uh, in December of 1995, and the code had just been changed in '94. So I believe that the most that I believe that the political landscape started shifting in 1998. That was when they started trying to get the law changed. So it took them from 98 to 2005 to get this thing changed. Mm-hmm. Um, it was There was an enormous amount of money behind it. Financial interests were tremendous. Pressure was enormous. Um, I'm very active in the National Association of Consumer Bankruptcy Attorneys, so I was watching a lot of the The lobbying efforts that NACPA was undertaking to to bring to light the stories of the consumer because the banner that the that the banking uh, that the financial institutions were waving was there there are very few people who are honestly going into bankruptcy, and the bankruptcy system is rife with abuse that's that's what they said that's what they said it was people who file for bankruptcy are dishonest they're trying to pull one over on the system they're deadbeats they're dragging down the rest of the economy we need to be able to curtail their ability to seek the protection of the bankruptcy court that was that was what they came out with and um President Clinton fought against it, and and he, his administration was was tremendous for the consumer. Um, and then later administrations, and you know the winds changed, um, and ultimately they were able to get it passed. Now the thing is, with respect to student loans, nobody was watching that provision except for the consumer bankruptcy attorneys. We were the only ones who were watching that specific provision, Section 523A8 of the U.S. Bankruptcy Code. We were the only ones that were talking about the change. We were the only ones that were watching the change. And nobody else was paying attention to it. The press didn't talk about it. It was impossible to get a story in um because it didn't fit with the story of dishonest people filing for bankruptcy right. because that would have changed the story to poor students who just want a better life and look at the short end of the stick that they're getting
0: right i think this is an issue that i was dead wrong on in the past when i was younger i very much had the perspective of uh, you know I very much had the perspective of the story of people are abusing the bankruptcy code, and mm-hmm. I don't remember the specific influences of that, but I very strongly had that uh, that perspective, and I remember, I think I remember even when that law changed in in oh five, uh, kind of being very much in the pro yeah finally you know somebody cracking down on this bankruptcy <laughs> on this on all these uh, these 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 people, these unethical people who are out declaring bankruptcy, I I, I had that impression. I think sure. I, flat, I, I think I was flat out wrong on that and I've learned over the last 10 years my experience has been uh, I'm sure uh, you know as a financial planner with limited exposure I'm sure that there have been a few uh, I'm sure there are some people who abuse the bankruptcy system uh, but my experience has been most of the people that I've done financial counseling with who have been in that situation hasn't been through abuse it may have been through foolish decisions uh, mm. oftentimes it was due through I mean and I'd love for you to comment on the primary reasons, but uh, things, you know, medical events, uh, unexpected medical events, loss of business, things like that. And when I started studying it and I realized how important, there's a strong argument to be made for how important the the relatively, and again, correct me in a moment on anything I've gotten wrong here, but on, on how the relatively liberal bankruptcy provisions of the United States as compared to many other countries, how important that has been to the growth of economy, the ability of an entrepreneur uh, especially uh, and an individual to kind of reset and be able to start over again and not be uh, stuck with <laughs> Charles Dickens' version of a debtor's prison for the rest of their life.
1: Yeah, it's, it, bankruptcy is a, financial, uh, is a financial safety net. And it's always been that way, or, or in the modern iteration of the bankruptcy laws, um, it's been a financial safety net that allows you to take a risk and start a business. Um, it allows you to think beyond where you are. And and yeah, there are some people who just make bad financial decisions. and. Like I said, I've been a bankruptcy lawyer since the end of nineteen ninety five. There have been there have been those people that come in and sit down in front of me and I just we look at each other and we say, Yeah, you know, that wasn't the smartest move you've ever made. (laughs) But but that doesn't happen all that often at all. And 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 this was something that I didn't realize when I set off on my career path. Um, I didn't realize just how infrequently bad decision-making comes into play. Um, one of the big reasons for people to go into bankruptcy is love. It's amazing. Um, family members co-signing for cars for other family members. Right. Um, I've I've had more than my fair share of grandparents who were brought into bankruptcy only because they co-signed for a grandchild's automobile. Wow. First car out. And now, what we're seeing is a lot of the people who are being brought down by private student loans are grandparents. Wow. Because, because private student loans, again, they're credit-based. Now, if you look at an 18-year-old and then you look at their parents well their parents probably don't have great credit because they've just been through the ringer of 08 09 10 11 12 the whole recession they've they've had diminished income they have uh, diminished value of their assets maybe they went through financial hardship on their own so who do you look to you look to the grandparents you look to the the retiree who's got a stable income, who probably owns their house outright, if not darn close to it, who isn't making any major financial investments right now. There's there's no new money going out. They're the stable one. So the grandchild goes to the grandparent, asks them to co-sign the student loan because they're the ones with the best credit in the family. Then the kid comes out of school. I, I have a client in my office who has 146,000 dollars in private student loans. Wow. That she co-signed for her granddaughter who had hoped to to, you know, live in the American dream. Wow. And um now my client is is on on the other side of the V as I say. She's been dragged into court by National Collegiate Student Loan Trust, who is uh, the large uh, or or the largest private student loan trust out there, um, being sued for one hundred and forty-six thousand dollars.
0: Wow, that's a <laughs> that's a tough uh, 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 that's a tough situation to be in. Yeah. Uh, so I want to talk about some specific advice, and then if if we have time and uh, it's back into even that situation that you're in with that with that client uh, sure. but let's start kind of a little bit farther back and try to help people avoid uh, avoid uh, uh, let's try to help people avoid that and the comment I have to throw in one of my one of my favorite Bible verses on the subject um, in Prover on co-signing I, I just I love this just because I love the language of it uh, But I'll read it. My child, if you co-sign a loan for a friend or guarantee the debt of someone you hardly know, if you've trapped yourself by your agreement and are caught by what you said, quick, get out of it, (laughs) (laughs) if you possibly can. You've placed yourself at your friend's mercy. Now swallow your pride. Go. Go and beg to have your name erased. <laughs> so in my mind that's a good place to start for for a cosign, and that's from uh, from Proverbs six six. Uh, but I just had to throw that in because it's one of my it's one of the simplest things to avoid. Um, but yet that heart of compassion that starts to tug at our heartstrings of saying, "I really love this person. Uh, I want them to get a good education. I want them to have a nice car. I want them to be able to buy this house. Their life is going to be uh, improved." But I tell you, the number—at least my observation—the number of times it works out well uh, are far, are fewer, many fewer than the times it works out poorly. Yeah. Let's start at the beginning, mm-hmm. and assume that I have gone to school. I have made some. Uh, I've taken out student loans. Uh-huh. Uh, and I've gotten out of school. Uh, I've got some student loans. I've got a you know I've got a car payment. I've got a mortgage. Uh, I've got eh, ten thousand bucks of credit card debt. So. Median income, doing all right. You know, My wife and I are both working, but then all of a sudden uh, we find out that we're having a kid. And then fast forward a few months, she has a difficult pregnancy and she's on bed rest. She loses her job. We have a child. Maybe the child has some special needs. And so she's not going to be able to work. And now I'm kind of stuck. And the month is more than the money. And I, I'm still sort of making it, but I recognize that uh, things are going to go wrong here. What if you had the opportunity to give somebody some advice at that situation where the plan isn't working out quite as well as it was supposed to be and we're, we can see that we're going to start to have some problems? Knowing what you know, what would you want to proactively do in that situation?
1: Well, talk about stacking the deck against somebody
0: in that fact pattern. <laughs> I had to give a little bit. Of, we gotta, <laughs> you you got to make it difficult, right?
1: <laughs> um. I'm waiting for you to tell me that they're tied to the train tracks, and <laughs> you know the train is approaching. I, I, I'm actually going to back out from that fact pattern because okay. I'm, I, I'm going to tell you what to do the day you graduate from college. Okay. Because I like there's, that. Even there's, better. there's, there's one thing that you can do on that day. You know, when you graduate from college, you get a six-month uh, window until you have to start paying your student loans, right? The yes. federal student loans, you get, a, you get a six-month window. You don't have to take that six-month window. You can elect to put yourself into repayment immediately. Now, bear with me. When you bring yourself into repayment, the first thing you do for your federal student loans Is you get yourself into one of the income based repayment plans. Now, for new graduates, it is different than for people who graduated some time ago. And I'll, I'll review the two, the two, uh, the two options for new graduates. It's called pay as you earn or new IBR. It allows you to set your student loan payments at 10% of your disposable adjusted gross income. A, and disposable adjusted gross income is household adjusted gross income from the bottom line of your tax return. Post My, post,
0: post retirement contributions?
1: Yep, yeah, bottom, okay, bottom line. Bottom line. Last, Just wanted to line. clarify, okay? Yep, mm-hmm. last line at the 1040. minus 150% of the poverty level for a household of your size, okay? So, if, now, now if you think about it, when you come out of college, what is more than likely going to be your adjusted gross income for the year immediately prior? It's gonna be really low, isn't it? Right. It's gonna be either, you know, maybe, you'll, maybe you work part-time, maybe you made minimum wage, maybe a little over that, Maybe it's zero. So if you put yourself into IBR or pay as you earn that day, you're paying for for new loans, Pays you earn is 10%. Old IBR is 15%. 10% of zero is? <laughs> zero. Exactly. You can be in repayment at $0 a month.
0: That's fantastic. And re,
1: yep. And you recertify once a year. So, at the end, the, why do you want to get yourself into one of these income based repayment options? Because for newer loans, the 10% repayment option, at the end of 20 years of repayment, the unpaid balance is discharged. For old loans, 25 years, the unpaid balance is discharged. Okay? We're
0: talking only about federal loans here, right? Only federal loans. Okay. And is discharged without regard to the size of the balance? without regard to the size of the
1: balance. Now, just a caveat. As of right now, the way that the regs are written, that is going to trigger a 1099.
0: Mm-hmm. Understood.
1: But, but number one, that's 20 or 25 years down the road. Mm-hmm. And number two, you only pay taxes on, uh, on debt settlement income to the extent that you're solvent when you get the 1099. So if you're insolvent 20 or 25 years from now, and it's not that hard to be insolvent, if you're planning 20 or 25 years in advance, you may not even have to pay taxes. But that's, that's kicking the can very far down the road. In addition, if you come out of school and you work in public service, federal government, state government, municipal government or a 501c3 not-for-profit regardless of the kind of work that you do. After 120 timely monthly payments the unpaid balance is forgiven no 1099 and it's only 10 years.
0: Okay. Uh, Okay. So here's the scenario. So my show is called the Radical Personal Finance. So Mm -hmm. here's my plan. Uh, I've decided that I need to build a social network uh, that is strong. So I'm going to choose to go to an Ivy League school. Unfortunately, I don't have a lot of, uh, I don't have a lot of background. I'm going to max out the federal loan system with as many loans as I can get from the federal loan system. I'm going mm-hmm. to go ahead and set up my Ivy League school, and I'm going to focus on building my social network. Once I get out, I'm going to establish my own 501c3 to. Uh, uh, to ch- you know, be the change that I wish to see in the world. Mm-hmm. And it's going to take me at least 10 years to build this thing. And uh, because I'm good at living cheap, I don't really need to, even though I'm the executive director, I don't need to bring that much out of it uh, as salary towards me, which keeps my, uh, my uh, household-adjusted gross income relatively low. Uh, mm-hmm. And I am going to go ahead, and since I am the executive director, I am going to go ahead and put in place a pension plan uh, and establish that, and I'm going to defer the maximum contribution to that pension plan for the first 10 years of running that organization while we get things going, because we believe that it's in the best interest of all of our uh, constituents that the employees of the uh, of the non-profit, not-for-profit organization uh, be able to defer the maximum amount of money to their retirement accounts. Uh, is my plan working so long as you are
1: employed full-time by that 501 C3 sounds like a great plan to me I like it <laughs>
0: this is good yep.
1: <laughs> so keep going yeah absolutely so that that's your federal money and by the way you should be maxing your federal money if you're like I said at the beginning if you're gonna take money take the federal first it's the cheapest it gives you the most. Options
0: And okay? what's the current interest rate on federal student loans at the moment?
1: They just announced, hang on, they just announced what the rate was going to be for July. Uh, this ballpark is fine. No, I want to give you the real number. Um, the real number is... Uh, 4.29% for direct subsidized and 5.84 for unsubsidized. Let me explain the difference between subsidized and unsubsidized. Because it's important. Subsidized student loans, the federal government pays the interest while you are in school. Unsubsidized student loans Interest accrues from the minute that you take out the loan. So if you take out a $5,000 loan, you're going to owe more than $5,000 on graduation day if it's unsubsidized. Mm-hmm. If it's subsidized on graduation day, you'll owe $5,000. Okay? So there's, there's that difference. Um, but as, as you can see, the rates are fairly low and they're fixed. Once you take out the loan the interest rate remains the same until it is paid off for the federal loans. For the private student loans, they are all variable. Every note that I've seen has the interest rate adjusting on a monthly basis. You have no income-based repayment options. You have no discharge options. You've got no forgiveness options. What that means is your first money, as between federal or private, if you can bring your IBR payment down or your pay-as-you-earn payment down, every other dollar goes to pay the private student loans because you want to get rid of them as quickly as you can. Right. Now, if you can't make the private student loan payment, let's talk about that. What happens if you can't make the payment? Right. Don't make partial payments. It doesn't help you. It doesn't make the lender like you. The lender isn't a person. They're an institution. Okay. If you can't make the full payment, then you can't make the full payment. Private student loans, as I said earlier, there is no difference between a private student loan and a bank loan or credit card. So what happens is you miss a payment, you go into default. After 180 days, they charge off the account, which is just an accounting term. It doesn't mean that you don't owe the money. Once they charge off the account, you go to a collection agency you go to a second-tier collection agency, and then ultimately you find yourself with a lawyer contacting you. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Now, and this, this varies state by state, there is a statute of limitations, a time limitation for the private student lender to file legal action against you once you go into default. And that amount of time is going to vary state by state. So you wanna talk to somebody, you wanna talk to a lawyer in your state to find out how much time they have. Not every private student loan is going to file a lawsuit against you. Some of them will, sometimes they will, sometimes they won't. There's no way of knowing, but if you can't make the payments, you can't make the payments, right? You know, at that stage of the game, what I tell my clients if they come to me and they're three years past due on their private student loans and they say, "I want to, I want to settle the student loan, I want to deal with the collection agency, or I want to start making payments again because because I, I I don't want it past due on my on my credit anymore." Mm-hmm. What I tell my clients is at that point the damage is already done. Your credit score is already shot, you've already got the collection on your credit report, and until such time, as somebody files legal action against you, if you're that far past due, you're gonna get a better settlement deal in litigation than you will through a regular collections process.
0: So wait for litigation to start on their end. Is that what you're saying? If you're,
1: yeah. If, if you're, if you're that, that far
0: behind and it's yeah. not easily caught up, then yeah. go ahead and just wait for litigation and then go yeah. ahead, get representation and, and, and go and fight it there.
1: Yeah, okay. absolutely. Um, you're dealing Because you're dealing with a lawyer instead of dealing with a collection agency, right. there's a very different mindset. Um, and as I tell my clients all the time, when you're just in collections, everything is voluntary. You ask them for documentation or information, whether they give it to you or not, it's all voluntary. You ask them for a settlement, whether they agree to it or not, it's all voluntary. On the flip side, they ask you for money, it's all voluntary. You bring it into court, suddenly you've got discovery, you've got disclosure rules, you've got rules of evidence, they've gotta be able to prove a whole host of things in order to get over every legal hurdle to prove the case and to prove the amount of money that you owe and that they're even collecting in a timely fashion
0: and when you're in uh, when you're in that litigation, the collection agency's attorney is there uh, obviously, if you have assets, then I would assume their goal is to attach your assets. But is their more likely goal, considering you probably don't have money, uh, you probably had something happen? Is there more likely goal garnishment of wages? Is that what they're working towards? Is their goal of, of the successful lawsuit against you? They're working
1: towards all of it. Some states don't allow wage garnishment. Some states really, yeah, some uh-huh. states don't have wage garnishment. I believe I believe if memory serves correctly that Texas does not have wage garnishment. Interesting. Um, there are some states that have unlimited homestead, which means that they cannot put a lien against your real estate. Florida has unlimited homestead. Texas has unlimited homestead. Other states have limited homesteads. Um, in some states, a judgment is automatically a lien against real estate. In other states, they need to jump through some extra hoops to be able to get the lien put on. Some states have higher wage garnishments. Some states, um, in, in, um, in community property states, a judgment can be executed against all community property assets. What that means is, if you're married in the state of California, what's yours is mine and what's mine is yours, which means that my wife's income is, in the absence of a prenuptial or a postnuptial agreement, my wife's income is community property. Mm -hmm. So if I owe money on a private student loan, they sue me, they get a judgment against me, they can execute against my wife's wages. They can garnish my wife's paycheck.
0: Hmm. (laughs) I don't, it's, you know... Be a lot simpler. I guess it's always just a lot simpler if you pay them up, uh, pay pay things off early. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, uh, yeah. It's, When you get into this world, uh, you know, I used to be leery of attorneys, and then I had a client who was a bankruptcy attorney, and uh, I started talking to him about some of these details. And from then on, I learned what I didn't know. And from then on, I just said. Call, and I would send so many people. I said, "You're in trouble here. Call call the bankruptcy attorney." And there is a reason uh, you want good representation to to come out ahead in, in these situations.
1: Yeah, and and what's really interesting is because and and we talked earlier about the whole securitization scheme and and how the assets and how the debts get transferred and poured over into these investment vehicles. What we're finding is that the paperwork is just as shoddy in student loans as it was in the mortgage market, wow. which, which means that it's never a slam dunk case on either side of the fence. If if you're defending the lawsuit and either you know enough about the lay of the land or your attorney knows enough about the lay of the land... Um, you really have a lot of leverage to be able to negotiate some pretty favorable settlements in some situations um, because it's, it's not a slam-dunk case on the part of the lenders.
0: Are you getting, have you had any cases where because of paperwork, uh, irregularities, we'll use the politically correct term, that you've had a complete discharge of the debt?
1: I have had situations where um, what 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 will happen is I'll get to the point where I've done full discovery on the case and I've recognized that there are holes in the case and that they don't have they don't have a slam dunk whatsoever. I'll go back to my client, let my client know, but my client's position is nine times out of ten going to be, well, even if there's a hole in their case, they could still conceivably win, right? Because they could. It it all comes down to a judge, Mm -hmm. and it all comes down to what an individual human being is going to rule, whether or not those holes in their case and whether or not the lapse in chain of ownership of that debt is enough to defeat the case on its face. My client's to a person, have all at that juncture said to me, I don't want to take the risk. Right. I'm not willing to take any risk whatsoever, but we have enough leverage that we can settle it far more aggressively than might otherwise be the case.
0: Right.
1: So I, I, I took a really long time to say no. I, I have not gotten to the point where I have done a complete discharge of that private student loan in a litigation context because every one of my clients has recognized that sometimes it doesn't matter who's wrong or right. Sometimes it just matters whether the judge had a bad cup of coffee that morning.
0: Yeah, and that makes sense. I mean, when you get—if you can negotiate an aggressive settlement at some point in time—the the, the reality is the borrower borrowed the money, and it also satisfies some of the uh, the moral obligation to repay. And if you yeah. can negotiate a fair settlement uh, where both parties' interests are protected, then uh, I, <laughs> I can understand why most—I uh, can understand why most people would uh, would make that choice. Back to the deferral. Uh, I want to ask a question when you were originally talking about uh, the decision to make right when you graduate from college, and I'm glad that you uh, shared that uh, because that's not something that I've ever known to advise people, but I, uh, I like that advice. Uh, is there, if you don't take advantage of that deferral, is there any way to save that and, for example, use that six-month deferral in the future if you run into financial stress or anything like that?
1: There, there are... Um there are financial hardship forbearances mm-hmm. that, that you can engage in um, depending upon... depending it's not upon, based
0: upon just like, okay, we, we saved that six-month uh, scenario. That's a one-time no, thing.
1: No, no, that's use it or lose it. But but again, bear in mind, if, if let's say you lose your job and now you've got no income and you were making $75,000 a year before, mm-hmm. your student loan payment was $480 a month, you lose your job. What do you do if you're on income-based repayment or pay as you earn? You pick up the phone and you call your servicer and you say, "I just lost my job. I want to recertify my IBR now." And you can re and you can reformulate the amount of money that's due on a monthly basis without using a forbearance or deferment.
0: I've got if a ha- yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead.
1: If if you've got a zero dollar income, then you ratchet your payments down to ten percent of zero
0: dollars. Right. Okay. Right. So that what you shared is incredibly valuable, uh, and I want to manage the time of our, of our interview here. I've got a question that came in from a listener, uh, but I want to make sure that if you have, for example, additional. Uh, suggestions in the same line that you started to answer my question from. Here's what you do from college that you that you continue with. That do you have an additional uh, recommend? Do you have additional recommendations for the scenario I outlined, or for that college student who's gone ahead and followed that initial advice? Uh, in, in do you have additional recommendations along that line?
1: I do to 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 a limited extent. If you've got private student loans, you want to be able to go back to the lender and find out what their procedure for a co-borrower release is. A lot of lenders offer the ability to get a co-borrower release under certain situations, uh, under certain circumstances. For example, um, uh, Sally Mae, one of the Sally Mae loans, has the ability to get your co-borrower released if you've made two years' worth of regular payments and you're financially able to handle the loan on your own. Now, of course, that's going to bring a lot of other things into play. For example, your your income level and your assets and things like that. But you want to try to set yourself up for that because ideally, I'm sure you'd like to let like grandma off the hook right. if you can. I'm sure grandma would like that too. Um, so that's really the next thing that, that I would recommend. Um, unfortunately there's very little that can be done with respect to a private student loan. So the best advice is take as much money as you possibly can and pay that thing down as quickly as you can. Um, and, and I know that that's, that's advice that's non-advice, uh, but that's really the best that, that anybody's going to be able to tell you to do. That having been said, once you, once you secure employment and once you've gotten on your on your feet financially assuming that you're making your private student loan payments in a timely manner there are places where you can refinance your private student loans now that didn't exist even two or three years ago there are companies like uh Sofi is 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 a big one that's in the market but there are tons of companies out there that are now helping people refinance their private student loans so if you're if you're making those payments on a timely basis, that's going to make you that much more attractive as a borrower for refinance on the student loan debt.
0: Even, potentially, even uh, companies like, what are the... the, uh, the, the, the I'm blanking. Prosper, Prosper, and Lending Club. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Things like that. Even, uh, mm-hmm. you know, even if you could get an unsecured loan through the, that system, and maybe it would be better in some regards if the terms could be uh, negotiated to be better than than the private student loan. At least that way, you transition that debt away from a non-bankruptible debt to a bankruptable debt, which uh, you know, my in my mind is a win. Uh, Absolutely. As long as there's not a big, as long as there's not a big cost, uh, a big, a big additional interest cost to do so.
1: Sure, absolutely. And uh, there there have been people who have paid off their private student loans with their credit cards using a right. zero balance interest rate. Right. Just And whether that's a smart move or a non-smart move, um, to your point, it takes it out of the non-dischargeability provision of the bankruptcy code for student loans.
0: I'd like to go into... Uh your area of expertise with regard to somebody is in bankruptcy or is is in distress what could be done uh, but i want to lead into it with this question and i'd like you to answer this question uh, and then give any other generalized advice around it this was a question from a listener. i actually answered it on a show a few weeks ago uh, i didn't focus specifically on the management of the student loan issue i focused on answering the investment question but even after the fact some of my audience wrote in and said joshua you missed it you missed you here were a couple of ideas that you didn't cover so here's okay. the here's the the short question from a listener listener said uh I reg- uh, it says, right now I need help with a crazy student loan issue. I'm currently paying almost $600 a month for a $102,000 student loan at 7%. couple of key things. My credit is shot due to a bankruptcy filed last year. The loan is with the Nelnet through the Department of Education. Uh The question is, should I pay down the loan or find an investment that will pay me $600 to offset the payment? Right now, the $600 is preventing me from moving forward on anything financial. I'm expecting a lump sum of money in February, like $60,000, and I'd love to invest it where I can earn $600 or more a month to offset the payment. Any ideas? How would you answer that within the context of managing the student loan intelligently?
1: Oh, and I remember the question, and I remember the follow-up. That was...
0: Uh, oh, you listened to one, the show? That, yeah, that was okay. that was
1: 191 I think it was, right, was right, right. when you did the follow-up. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the point that your listener brought up about the, the tax benefit of the $600 and the tax deductibility of the, of the student loan, I thought was a useful one. Um, with respect to... First, first of all, we know that this is a federal student loan. So we know that income-based repayment is an option, at least in theory. So that's the first thing that I would look at to bring down that payment. That's the first thing that I would look at. Okay. Um, as to whether or not would Now, the question is, should I pay down the student loan using the windfall or should I invest it?
0: That was the question. I answered that I don't know. In this scenario, my advice was pay down the loan because the risk, uh, the the type of investment that would return six. Just the question of okay, I got sixty thousand dollars. You would need a twelve percent consistent monthly dividend essentially uh, to be able to pay off the loan uh, under those payments. And if you calculate the amount of time it would take to pay off the loan at six hundred dollars a month at one hundred and two thousand dollars student loan at seven percent, you're looking at like sixty years of repayment. So. So my observation was, no. in this situation, I would focus 100% on paying down the student loan if you have a high income, and I just put the $60,000 against it, or if you have a bad income, a low income, then I'd invest the $60,000, potentially just keep the loan at minimum payments, and focus on building up a high income, maybe starting a business, buying a Subway franchise, et cetera, something like that, to try to generate enough capital where you can throw off $100,000 of, of profit in a few years and wipe the thing out. But as far as actually managing the loan, uh, do, you mm-hmm. ha- do you have any intelligent ideas that could help him?
1: I wouldn't pay down the loan.
0: Okay, um,
1: And The reason why I wouldn't pay down the loan, is, well, there are a couple of reasons. First of all, um, I would look into income-based repayment and pay as you earn first because that's going to bring that loan payment in line with your income. Second of all, you've got the tax deductibility of at least a portion of the money that you're paying uh, on your student loan annually. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's that. But third of all, and this is, the, this is the main reason why I wouldn't pay down that student loan, you just came out of bankruptcy, so your credit's shot. That, that to me, is that's, that's the key part of that entire question. Mm. If you just came out of bankruptcy and your credit is shot, if you run into a financial event of any sort, at this stage of the game, you've got no means of financing that. And so that windfall, at least a portion of that windfall, I would think that you'd want to have that available to you. Because if you need the money, you're not going to have any other way of borrowing it. right? Because you just came out of bankruptcy. So you want to have at least some of that windfall available. In addition to your point that well, if there's a financial event, then you want to know that, you, that, that you've minimized the risk with respect to the student loan. Remember, if there's a financial event, you can ratchet your payment down on those student loans. Income-based repayment and pay-as-you-earn change the conversation with respect to federal loans from how much do you owe and it changes it to how much is your payment. Because suddenly, you don't care about how much you owe quite as much as you used to.
0: right?
1: Because you've got that, you've, those payments are far more malleable than they were
0: in the old days. The 7% interest rate, is that a, a higher rate because of the bankruptcy event? No, no.
1: Um, federal student loan interest rates vary year by year. Based upon when you took the loan out. Okay. But once you take the loan out, it is set in stone for the remaining life of that loan. The only time that your federal student loan interest rate changes is if you have multiple loans at multiple interest rates and you consolidate through the U.S. Department of Education direct loan program. In that case, the interest rate becomes a weighted average of the interest rates Of the loans that are consolidated
0: do you have advice regarding consolidating loans versus not consolidating loans you get one bite
1: at the apple for consolidation of your federal student loans you only get one bite at the apple it is a saving grace if you are ever in default it is a quick and dirty way of getting yourself out of default and out of any enforcement mechanisms that the U.S. Department of Education has against defaulted student loan borrowers. That's administrative wage offset, tax refund offset, uh, regular litigation, legal action. So I don't like consolidating federal student loans because I like keeping it in my back pocket.
0: I never knew that. That's a useful tip. Yep, yep. Huh. So if you are, you know, I've, I've I've got three loans. I've been paying them, but I had a hiccup. I got laid off again. My wife got pregnant. Now she's back. Okay, we can pick it up. We've been in default. Um, so you're saying that I've been in, I'm, I'm behind four months. If I go ahead and consolidate, does that improve that situation? Because it wipes the default, uh, or wh- how does it help me?
1: Okay, let's talk about default. Federal student loans go into default when they are 270 days past due. Okay. That's default. Anything prior to that is delinquency. So let's let's say that you're 370 days past due because I, I want you in default for the purposes of this conversation. There are two ways of getting your federal student loans out of default. One is rehabilitation, and the other is consolidation. You get one bite at the apple for each one. Okay, so you can consolidate your your defaulted federal student loans and you're out of default in 30 to 90 days, somewhere in that range, okay? Or you can rehabilitate, which is also one bite at the apple. It involves making nine monthly payments within a 10-month period of time to the debt collector that is handling the federal student loan at the end of the nine months, at the end of the nine payments, rather, because it could, conceivably be 10 months. At the end of the nine payments, your loan comes out of default and goes back into active status. The fact that you were in default on your federal student loan gets taken off of your credit report.
0: Nice. I like that.
1: Yeah. You only get one bite at the apple for that also. In terms of, because the next question becomes well, how much would those monthly payments be? The monthly payments are the reasonable and affordable monthly payments. Reasonable and affordable under current regulations are deemed to be the amount that the payment would be if you were in IBR or pay as you earn. So let's say you're in default and you are unemployed still unemployed. Mm-hmm. That is the best time to rehabilitate your student loan because under reasonable and affordable, it's it, you can't have a $0 a month rehabilitation payment. It's got to be at least 5 bucks a month. So, if you're unemployed, you can rehabilitate your student loans at 5 bucks a month. Make 9 monthly payments of 5 bucks. It's $45 in total. Brings you out of default. Into active repayment, you elect IBR or pay as you earn, you're unemployed, and you're making payments at $0 a month. You can actually do that. And I've done it.
0: Wow. <laughs> Jay, I like I got I got to go listen to your entire podcast. I like this. I, you and I uh you and I have brains that probably work similarly. Like I like these little <laughs> angles that you've been able to come up with. You know, my my knowledge of student loans is is extremely limited uh, and so I'm glad to have some of these ideas that you've been sharing with us. Super useful.
1: Well, I'm happy to help. I'm happy to happy to share the information with your listeners, Joshua.
0: Are there any other broad-based pieces of advice that you would have for somebody in various stages of problems in addition to what you've covered so far?
1: I have one piece of advice for student loan borrowers, and that is to stay away from the companies that you see online or on late-night TV. These student loan consolidation companies or student loan counselors, Um, there have been more than a few of them that the government has taken down in recent months because they are scamming people out of money. When it comes to federal student loans, you can do your own IBR. You can do your own pay as you earn. They're both two-page forms. You can get them directly from the U.S. Department of Education. You can call your servicer and most of the time, they'll do, the, they'll do it for you over the phone. You can rehabilitate your your defaulted federal student loan on your own, and it doesn't cost you any money. You can do a federal student loan consolidation on your own. doesn't cost you any money. You don't have to spend money to do it. There are some people who will come to me, for example, and say, look, I know I don't need anybody to do it, I know I don't have to spend any money on it at all, but I don't want the hassle. I don't have the time. I'm afraid of making a mistake. Can I hire you to do it? Yeah, I'm happy to do it. But the amount of money that I charge, is a it's, it's a fraction because I recognize that my value is in my knowledge, not necessarily in typing out a two-page form. And right. in fact... I do everything humanly possible to dissuade people from hiring me for that. Because I got to tell you, I think it's a waste of money. Um, The value comes in, in dealing with anybody when it's a private student loan and you're in default. That's when there's real value in hiring somebody to do something for you. That person should always be a lawyer because if you're going into litigation... Only a lawyer can represent you. And it ideally should be somebody who's local to you. Because if if you're being hauled into your local court and your lawyer isn't local, you've got to start asking questions about how that lawyer is going to effectively manage your, your defense.
0: Right. You so that, made an easy transition for me. I was just going to ask you, how do... Uh, bankruptcy attorneys and uh if you're working specifically with with student loan uh litigation how do you guys set your fees and how can what can someone expect that to actually work as far as the financial uh benefit you know the, your client for example owe 140,000 how do you set your fees
1: I do not set my fees based upon the amount of money that they owe okay i i, I don't, that's and that's Universal okay. uh, for the most part, for federal student loan stuff that's all flat fee um, and it tends to be again incredibly low um, it's I do it more as a public service than anything else uh, for litigation defense that also tends to be a flat fee obviously it's more expensive than um, than doing an IBR application uh, I personally set it as a flat fee because I know that my clients need to have some certainty mm-hmm. in how much they're getting into. Um, it, it it just doesn't make sense to charge a client on an hourly basis, as far as I'm concerned. And that's based upon what my normal hourly basis is. Right. Um, I know that other lawyers do it on an hourly basis. There are some lawyers that do it flat fee. Different different strokes for different folks, I think that the most important thing for, um, for a borrower to look at is who the person is, what kind of experience they have, what kind of training they have, um, what organizations they're active members of, not just I'm a member of ABC Bar Association, but what are they active in? Um, you know, what, what sort of continuing education are they undertaking? Um, spend some time. That's, that's what the internet is for. Spend some time getting to know your potential service providers before you even pick up the phone and talk to somebody.
0: Two final questions. One, uh-huh. continuing the theme of the debt help Companies. This is an area of financial advice that I've really struggled to know what the right answer is. And I've just kind of been forced to go based and kind of parrot the answer that I've heard from uh, some other people. But if somebody's in a situation that's broader than student loans, uh, they may may or may not include student loan defaults, uh, but it's broader than student loans. And they're struggling uh, and they're trying to decide, okay, I need some help. I need some consumer credit counseling. Uh, Do you have any? perspective you can give on the layout of the of the landscape uh, you know uh, for example national consumer credit counseling affiliate is that, is that the name they're an affiliate of, of the national organization or the yeah. private kind of where are the gotchas in that business basically is what i'm asking
1: oh goodness there there are so few of these companies that i like um, and and it is so unfortunate um, as far as credit counseling is concerned Credit counselors will typically deal with only limited types of debts. Um, for example, uh, the one company that I, I tend to send people to does work with credit card debts, and now they deal with uh, now they deal with student loans. But um, they're not going to be able to deal with, say, uh, repossessions or foreclosure avoidance. Um, you know. That's that's as close as I can really tell you. Um, you want a company that's been around for a while. You want a company that ideally is a member of uh, NFCC, which is the National Foundation for Credit Counseling. Um, anybody that uh, my rule of thumb is any company that advertises on television after ten o'clock at night. Or during what would normally be business hours, don't call them. <laughs> just, just don't. That, that, that's my rule of thumb, um, and and it it tends to serve my clients pretty well. Um, there are a lot of fly-by-night companies. A lot of a lot of the, uh, and I'm using my air quotes here. The credit counseling companies became loan modification companies during the during. The, the mortgage meltdown or short sale companies and now they've become student loan companies and you know they're it's the same people over and right, over and right. over again and they just they slap a new ribbon on it
0: money attracts good people and it attracts scum <laughs> and differentiating <laughs> between them is always a constant challenge for us <laughs> no
1: question about it no question about it your best bet is really To talk to some, the first person that anybody should talk to is somebody who's got a license in something, whether it's a certified financial planner like you are, or a lawyer like I am, or a CPA, or an enrolled agent, because they're likely going to know somebody who is reputable as opposed to just shooting blind on this stuff.
0: Last question is actually a business question. Okay. And it has to do with the impact of your podcast on your legal practice. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure how long you've been doing your podcast, but it seems like you've got quite a number of episodes here. And okay. I'm interested to know what the impact has been of actually creating your show and how it's helped or hurt your business.
1: Here's something that you don't know about me. I started podcasting in 2005. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I had, I had a show called the Debt Podcast. Uh, I was the podcast. Dad
0: Podcast or the Debt Podcast. Debt.
1: debt. Okay. D E B T. Got it. Podcast. Um, and it ran from the beginning of 2005 until I want to say March 2006. Um, and it was designed, really, for me more than anybody else, as a means for me to try to understand the new bankruptcy law that was being rolled out in 2005 um and so i figured that the best way to learn about it was to talk about it so and at that time podcasting did enormous things for my practice uh it helped me secure speaking engagements it drove uh not necessarily direct clients but it drove a lot of referrals from other professionals um and that was in the baby days of podcasting i mean it it was the wild, wild frontier. Right. Um, now the student loan show, I do the student loan show, and I'm launching another show with a colleague of mine uh, at Consumer Ledger, which is uh, a personal finance site that I was uh, running on and off with, with another consumer bankruptcy attorney. But the student loan show really has done a lot for my practice, actually. Uh, again, more through referrals um, and more through speaking engagements and more through just generally elevating um, eh, elevating my profile in the community. I, I, I think that podcasting is phenomenal.
0: I do. My favorite thing about your site, you've got this thing right on your site says, have a question, you mm-hmm. put your name, your email, enter your question, and then you have a drop down, and it says, answer it on the show. And then you have the, I want a one-on-one analysis. Mm-hmm. This is, Is brilliant because it allows potential clients of yours to ask you their question. And you can respond number one, you get a great you get a gate you get you get a great capture form here that uh-huh. is low that is low risk. Then you uh-huh. can say, Oh, I'm just submitting it for the show. You get consistent material for your show to be able to answer these questions. Yeah. And obviously you have their email address. So if you don't want to answer it on the show, you can write out a paragraph uh, back to them. Uh-huh. And even if they do or don't click one on one analysis, you're still getting the lead either way. You can respond and you can help them. And then if they're a right fit for your service, you can and your help you know, you might just send them to go fill out this form and this is what you need, which is simple and easy for you to do. Or mm-hmm. if you say, I can help you and here's what you should consider or here's how you do it yourself. This is a brilliant uh, setup here for you as far as very <laughs> friendly, consumer friendly <laughs> marketing. think this is awesome. everybody should be doing this. (laughs) Every personal service provider. That's what I'm convinced. I've got a couple of attorney friends of mine. I've been trying to convince them to start a podcast and Mm -hmm. for many reasons. But when you get into such a specialized area and more and more, I think we all need to be practicing. I'm kind of doing the hard road here, trying to be the generalist. And it shows when I answer questions uh, incompletely because of my lack of knowledge in a specialist area. But I'm trying to kind of be the broad based strokes here and see if this works, this works. But as far as an actual service provider, this is, I just want everyone to go to what is it studentloanshow.com and, <laughs> you know, listen to the show if you have an interest in learning more, but at least just look at this, have a question format, because this is some of the most consumer friendly uh, marketing I can imagine doing. And I hope it's bringing you clients like gangbusters. It,
1: it is. Thank you. Um, i I. I enjoy online marketing. I do. Um, and if you look at my law firm website, which is consumerhelpcentral.com, I, I did that one entirely on my own. Um, I, I enjoy putting things together that make sense for my potential clients. And you're doing hard work. You're doing this five days a week. <laughs> you're doing every day. That's... but that's bananas
0: you know what that is- but you know what so here's a specific example um, as far as why I'm doing it I, I, I for years I always loved listening to financial radio and the biggest influence was Dave Ramsey uh, sure. and he really encouraged me and I owe him a real debt of gratitude one of these days I'm going to meet him I really want to interview him uh, I just haven't I haven't asked for it yet but one of these days mm-hmm. I want to meet him and express that to him personally but as I've gone on even the thing that you said about consolidating student loans, That is different than Dave's advice was, and I made a mistake. Now I perceive, looking back at my own student loans, because what Dave had told me was consolidate your student loans. And so I dutifully, at that phase of of my life, I dutifully went out and I had taken out I had three student loans uh, through Sally Mae for college, and I went ahead and consolidated them. And then I was working because Dave said to consolidate them, and I didn't. You know, I hadn't even graduated yet, but I just kind of did it right away, even while I was still in school. And thankfully, it worked out fine. I worked. Like like a crazy man, my senior year in college, and actually wrote a check to Sally Mae two weeks before I graduated and paid them all off before I graduated, which was one of my personal financial goals. Uh, but little things, when I go back and start to dig into subjects more deeply, little things uh, matter. And when, just the just the tips that you gave there of number one about consolidation uh, and number two about uh, the the discussion of go ahead and set this up on an income based repayment plan. Those tips are going to save. Several dozen people in this audience, a tremendous amount of money. And when we have the time in this kind of format to get into these things, uh, in detail and some of, and then the primary impact, not most mainstream consumers are not going to listen to my show. It's too in depth. It's too much, but the hardcore people will. And then that allows me to multiply the information because then, you know, listener, Ed and listener Jane, uh, they'll take that and their, their niece or their nephew is getting ready to say, Hey, listen, let me teach you a little financial tip here that you need to apply to your situation and we can accomplish just an incredible change. So, uh, I'm just kind of creating the, I'm kind of creating the job I want to have, but I also, it's, it's kind of that mixture of mission and, uh, you know, it's in it. For, there's stuff in it for me too. I'm building a business that I want to have. I'm building a lifestyle business, but sure. there's also a little bit of that impact. And when we get to the point of of, uh, you know, the, the, even back to the student loan scam, the crap that's been pulled in the past with all that marketing, mm-hmm. I'm I don't want that to happen again. And it'll you know. Bush administration did that one. Uh, you know, Clinton, whatever, Obama administration, but there'll be another administration. There'll be another sure. thing. And we're little by little with independent media. We're slowly breaking the information logjam. And if you look at it, it's got people running scared because it's harder and harder for the banksters to control the narrative mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, when you've got five companies that own all the media, com- media, uh, brands, then that's pretty easy for those companies to manipulate the narrative in a way that benefits them. But we've got an ability to change that, and that change is going to lead to good things all, all across the board. So <laughs> that's a long-winded I, way of saying, I think what you're doing and what I'm doing is important and it's worth doing.
1: <laughs> I, I think you're absolutely right. and I think, that, I think that independent media is so important, especially now. And you're, you're starting to see the bigger media conglomerates starting to look at this platform and starting to ask the question of, okay, what can we do to get involved in it? I mean, look, and, and I like NPR, so I, I'm, I've got no gripes with them. Um, they're entertaining, they're informative. NPR had an upfront this year. I, that blew my mind. The fact that a mainstream media company is running an advertiser upfront for their podcast is for, for their podcasts, that that's a complete sea change that shows right. that there is, there's money. And when there's money, there's media, which is why being out in front of it, like you are, and like I am, and like so many other small time podcasters are, I think that's so incredibly important because we're running out of time to build traction. Right. So build it now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Are you uh, are you going to podcast movement?
0: I am planning to, but I haven't bought a ticket. My wife and I are expecting a baby at the end of this month, and so ah, I'm keeping my schedule. Thank you. I'm keeping my schedule flexible, uh, just waiting depending on that. You know, everything could everything could be smooth and easy, and it's no problem for me to jump on an airplane or jump in the car and head up to Texas. Or yeah. uh, there could be a need for me to be in Florida uh, during that time, so I've, I'm keeping my travel schedule open.
1: Yeah. I'm I'm actually going to miss podcast movement because I'm doing, I run the student loan law workshop with uh, Joshua Cohen, who awesome. I mentioned at the, at the top. So that weekend we're actually in Vegas doing a training so I can't do podcast math, movement. Um, I will be at FinCon though. Um, I'll be there as well. First... I'm, I'm actually okay, speaking
0: good. at FinCon. Um, Are you really? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. neat. So we'll get a I... chance to meet up there. That'd be awesome.
1: Sounds good to me. Joshua, thanks for, for, Sitting and talking to me and letting me do this. Yeah. this was
0: a lot of fun. Real quick as we go, uh, yeah. just tell us about what your show is about, what the subjects cover, and tell us about your services and where people can find you. Uh, do your advertisement here so that people who uh, would like to talk to you can find you easily.
1: Okay, I am a student loan lawyer and consumer bankruptcy attorney operating in the state of California as well as in the state of New York. My law firm is Shava and Fleischman. You don't need to spell it. You can just go to consumer helpcentral.com. That's my law firm website. My podcast is The Student Loan Show. It's at studentloanshow.com. I talk about all the same stuff that we talked about today. I really tried my best to break down all of your student loan questions in a way that's understandable and that's actionable so that this way you can be in a better financial position with respect to your student loans.
0: Jay, this has been awesome. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Joshua. Pretty cool, huh? (laughs) I told you you'd like it. I know that I'm going to be going over and uh, checking out Jay's show and listening to all of his back catalog of content. That's my plan to make sure that I brush up even my knowledge. I have a responsibility uh, given the position that I have with Radical Personal Finance to be an expert in – well, to be at least no- more knowledgeable in this area than I am. So I'm going to use Jay's show to, to uh, kind of uh, move me forward in that area. So go over and check it out, studentloanshow.com. Also check out all of his other sites and work. Links are in the show notes for today's episode. Uh, share the information in today's show with somebody. I hope that will be uh, – You know, help somebody else. Uh, I've realized that I've made mistakes and I've probably given bad uh, advice to other people. So let's help avoid that and let's help people make smarter decisions with their student loans. Thank you all so much for listening for today. Uh, Two closing announcements here. Number one new uh, affiliate uh, relationship. I've recently established, you heard there at the very end of the interview, you heard Jay mention a company called SoFi. Uh, SoFi is short for social finance. It's a company that's working to uh, change how student loan refinancing uh, works. Now, you heard Jay talk about some details of when you would want to refinance, when you wouldn't want to refinance. Uh, I've recently was researching SoFi as a potential uh, affiliate relationship on the show, and I did establish an affiliate link with SoFi. I plan a full comprehensive show on the topic going through some of the different people for consolidation. I don't have that outline prepared yet where I'm ready to bring it to you. So feel free to wait, but or if you would like to potentially consider refinancing some of your loans, if you do some research on SoFi, I won't go into it in, in, in any depth right now, but if you do some research on SoFi and if they seem to be a good uh, fit for you Go to First RadicalPersonalFinance.com Slash Student Loans And you'll find a link there RadicalPersonalFinance.com Slash Student Loans If you use my affiliate link uh, I get a hundred bucks And you get a hundred bucks so That helps me out uh, uh, Makes a li- uh, I, I earn a little bit of a commission Which is really useful uh, Second uh, So check that out More details coming in a future show Also Thank you so much for each one And every one of you Who supports the show directly As a patron If you don't why not radicalpersonalfinance dot com slash patron? Radicalpersonalfinance dot com slash patron. Thank you for listening to today's show. Please subscribe to the podcast with our free mobile app so you don't miss a single episode. Just search the app store on your device for Radical Personal Finance, and you'll find our free app. If you have received value from the content of this show, please consider becoming a patron. Your financial support is how I pay the bills for the show and how I plan to grow our content. You can support the show with as little as a dollar a month or as much as you feel the content is worth. Details are at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. If you'd like to contact me personally, my email address is joshua at RadicalPersonalFinance.com dot com, or connect with the show on Twitter at radicalpf and at facebook dot com slash radical personal finance. This show is intended to provide entertainment, education. And financial enlightenment. But your situation is unique, and I cannot deliver any actionable advice without knowing anything about you. Please develop a team of professional advisors who you find to be caring, competent, and trustworthy, and consult them, because they are the ones who can understand your specific needs, your specific goals, and provide specific answers to your questions. I've done my absolute best to be clear and accurate in today's show but I'm one person and I make mistakes. If you spot a mistake in something I've said, please come by the show page and comment so we can all learn together. Until tomorrow, thanks for being here.